0: Hey, Colin. Great to have you back on my show again. How you doing, mate? Hey, Nikos, my
1: man. Doing pretty good. What's the weather like in North Carolina right now? Yeah, a little cloudy, but uh, we've been having uh, very hot days between well, the 80s and 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, wow. So it's uh, it's very warm, regular summer here. That's about 27
0: today in uh, Ukraine. And uh, today, I saw my first jet flyover, I think, uh, um, SU-27. So yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting times. Air raid sirens going off every two days. So the air raid siren basically sirens for, goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down four times when the air, air or missile started. And then when it's finished, it's a long tone for about two minutes. And then that's what you know.
1: Well, you guys haven't lost much electricity. Do you have like a backup generator, or do you just have a good, good power grid? Um,
0: most people here do not have any backups. Um, but we have not we've not had any problems here in the western Ukraine so far. Um, we know people that have obviously have problems with generators and you know to stay but a lot of that work's been done in uh, in Kiev, so it's been been repaired. So and then also yesterday we were Serving Donetsk uh, pretty much to push back the Russians out of that city almost. So holding on. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, I, I just think the Russians have overextended themselves. I, I, and I think that they're getting a serious, uh, a serious reverse propaganda operation against them. And I, get, uh, I have a couple of people I know in Russia. And, and they're telling me that the people are being fed an entirely different story compared to what we know in the real world. That, uh, and one, one of my contacts there in Russia, his grandparents were Ukrainian. And he was born and uh, Odessa, I believe, but his father was Russian and uh, and his mother was Ukrainian. So but uh, the Russians are not getting the real story. They're being pipelined and being fed the propaganda with regard to this being a great uh, a new patriotic war to cleanse Ukraine of, uh, fascist elements and this weirdness, which we all know is rubbish. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like setting your house on fire and, cl- and claiming that, uh, claiming that it was an act of God to get the insurance money. Uh, Putin just, uh, Putin really made a bad mistake. He, he really did. And I don't think his ego and his pride will let him acknowledge that. And I, I, I really do think that the time is going to come when Putin's going to be removed by his own people because even the senior military leadership, they may not be tactically and strategically as proficient as their predecessors, but they have to be politically and culturally savvy enough to realize that they're not in a good place.
0: Yeah, they, they don't want to go down with the ship, you know. Well, people yeah, have because, selfish
1: wants as well. <laughs> well, it was self-preservation takes a major, major uh, role in that, but I think that people who truly love their country uh, are not going to want to be involved in a bad war. And sure, yeah. And there's nothing good about. There's nothing good, positive, or even rational about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, anyone with any military background or tactical or strategic knowledge or historical knowledge knows exactly why he invaded Ukraine. He didn't come to liberate any damn body. He came to create the land bridge to the Crimea, and he wants to occupy all of the seaports in the Black Sea. He wants to occupy every access point into the Mediterranean through the Bosporus and the Dardanelles. That's why he did it. And if he can occupy the, uh, the agricultural bounty of the Ukraine as well and incorporate that into his overall economic matrix, well, that's more more rubles for him. And uh, so it's, I told my students when I was a professor, I said, give me any war in history, revolution, civil war, and I made them define the distinctions between a revolution and a civil war, by the way. Locate any any conflict in history, going back to the battle, to the wars of Ramses II. Okay, go to any conflict in history and try to prove to me that it was not rooted in economic necessity for one Nation or empire to invade another. Uh, and I'll prove you wrong. Every single conflict has, has, a, has its roots in economics. Every conflict. I don't care if you color it as religion or if you color it as politics or if you color it as saving face to respond to a threat. Every conflict has an economic root cause because wealthy happy, contented populations and their governments do not wage expensive wars against their neighbors unless they need something from that neighbor to benefit their own population. And Putin's, Putin's Russia was going down the drain economically. He had to do something to distract his people from the current economic crisis in Russia. When President Trump was, was president, we were economically uh, independent and exporting our oil and natural gas – so Putin's customer base was drying up. He had no one to sell to except China, okay, and maybe by proxy with China to North Korea. The the Iranians weren't being very effective because of the Hungary, virus. but Hungary and Germany as well, of course. Hungary and Germany, exactly, and 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 Hungary, Germany, Poland, the Baltics. I mean, you know, they didn't need Putin's pipeline. We were sending them oil and natural gas, much cheaper and much better quality. Petroleum products and gas then could come out of Russia. We have a better a better quality and uh, and more and we have greater quantity.
0: So well, we were that doing. That? I thought it was all one way from Russia to us.
1: No, I mean we were shipping, we were exporting, and uh, and then of course we get a new administration where competence is the least of their strong points, and uh, and so now we're paying twice as much. Two to two and a half times more for gasoline petrol, as you say in the UK. And uh, we're paying upwards of five, six dollars a gallon when it used to be two dollars and eighty to three dollars and thirty cents a gallon under Donald Trump. And uh so anyway, that's where we are. So Putin needed to have a distraction from his country's economic woes. But he also had territorial gains to make, and, and, and the strategic importance of the Black Sea cannot be underestimated. And having control of the Crimea without a land bridge to Russia didn't do him any good. So he had to connect those two, and to do that, he had to invade. And, uh, but that's all part of his military uh, overall strategic operational plan, as well as his economic uh, reconstruction process. He's got to have Ukraine, because Ukraine kept the Soviet Union alive for 70 years. Most people don't realize, I mean, I'm not a Ukrainian. I've never even been to Ukraine. But I do know that the, the importance of Ukrainian agriculture kept the Soviet Union alive because it was just such a great wheat growing sunflowers, barley, I mean, livestock. I mean, why do you think when Stalin came to power in the 1920s and 30s, you know, he systematically raped Ukraine of livestock and crops? He He stole the harvests. To sell them on the open market for hard currency because the Russian agricultural production was minimal. it could He could barely feed his own people with Russian production, but the Ukrainian production was what he needed. That's why the NKVD and lavrenti Beria went in there and said, okay, uh, we're going to take 90% of your produce. And the Ukrainians were like being nationalistic in their own minds or like no you're not going to do that oh we will so they executed tens of thousands and deported tens of thousands more to the gulags and then they murdered tens of thousands and then starved about uh, five to six million to death and so i understand the historical angst that ukrainians have with russians uh so they there's a lot of animosity there i know but there's also a lot of interbreeding and cross-familiarity with the Ukrainian and Russian peoples because of the decades of you know, commiseration and things of that nature. But uh, but I think uh, one of the two problems with Ukraine, one, is that you, on the one hand, you have the people all over the world supporting Ukraine, saying, hey, they're an independent nation. They were invaded by a belligerent, hostile neighbor. They need to be supported. Okay, I can understand that. And I, and I agree with that. but. I've had discussions with my colleagues and personally with our Southern border being a disaster with Joseph Biden, totally screwing our country beyond our recognition. And I think he'll be impeached. I think he'll be impeached and thrown out of office. Maybe even there might even be some criminal charges because of violations of national security act and uh, violations of his oath of office, not just impeachable crimes, but criminal crimes and civil liability uh, and some of his cohorts. But I think that, The biggest problem with Ukraine is people look at the history of corruption in that country, and they don't see your current president as being the reformer that he claims he is. Now, I firmly believe he's trying to clean it up. I think he's trying to straighten it out. He seems like a good man, Uh, but he's up against the wall with a lot of these oligarchs in Ukraine, the uh, the money launderers, the, the, the mafia. Barisma and all these other people. I mean, he's up against the wall and he's not going to make a lot of friends. Uh, so I, I kind of feel sorry for him in a way. He's, he's, in a re- he's in a really tough place.
0: Well, and people that have experienced life before Zelensky in Africa would say that he's cleaned up a lot of the issues so far. Um, but yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hate towards him from certain individuals, of course, uh, outside of Ukraine um, as well. But uh, we, we we absolutely love him, right, love him right now, you know. And um, actually, there are some people who would say that Biden is being better for Ukraine than Trump because Trump didn't want to send any weapons. But Biden's done a great great job with a lot of American weapons right now.
1: Well, Trump did send weapons. He, I mean, if, uh, Trump was sent the first batch of uh, of javelins, and he also sent a lot of other stuff. Remember, remember that Obama and Biden, when they were president, vice president for eight years— When Putin invaded Crimea, they sent MREs and blankets. They didn't send lethal aid. They didn't send weapons, bullets, bombs. They didn't send anything. Trump released anti-tank weapons. He released all of this hardware. The problem is it takes time to move it. And when you do that, a president can't unilaterally just say, well, I'm going to go ahead and ship all this stuff to... No. You see, that falls under senatorial approval. just like a president cannot negotiate a treaty without Senate approval. The Senate has to approve. That's their job. They have to approve foreign treaties and they have to approve things. And you have congressional oversight in the House of Representatives. So that's a process. And when you have liberal Democrats, progressive idiots in in the majority with Trump in the White House with his, with his conservative Senate trying to get things done, it's amazing about the liberal idiots because they're all about... Right now, they're all about, well, we have to send all this money and all this stuff to Ukraine. this, that the other because Biden's in office? If Biden fell dead tomorrow and Trump were sitting in the White House, they'd block all that aid to Ukraine because it would benefit Trump. They don't give a damn about Ukraine. Our liberals in this country don't give a damn about Ukraine. They don't care about Ukraine. They don't care about anything other than maintaining their power base and keeping a good public image. And, that, and their positions shift. With the wind depending upon where the political polls are, are, are reading so you can't rely upon my, my country is the only country in the world and i know this my country is the only country in the world it's always been this way that our foreign policy changes every four years if a president is changed you don't have a consistent platform of foreign policy That goes straight through administration after administration after administration. A president gets in. He doesn't like something. Oh, well, we're not going to do that. We'll change it up. That's why most of our allies feel they can't trust us, because we get some idiot, some brain dead parking meter like uh, Biden in there, and he kills oil and gas. Uh, He creates a choke point with regard to. Our, ec- our own economic situation he wants to, he spends money like a drunken sailor he thinks he's doing the world a favor and doing our country a favor when all he does is help us get deeper in, and closer into a recession by making inflation rise by the way that noise is day sirens just ignore it it's, it's okay we'll be okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> well if your screen goes blank and i hear a blast yeah. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, rem- I'll, I'll, I'll remember you finally uh but no but our our nation uh, our, our our foreign policy will change drastically sometimes with every different administration that's why biden is saying okay we're going to ship all these what biden's not shipping anything that came out of his own creative mindset that stuff sitting on the pallets that trump had already approved trump already said we're going to send this stuff to ukraine but it had to get there and uh I don't even think Biden knows where the hell Ukraine is, even though he's been there before. So, uh, but anyway, but as far as your as far as Ukraine goes, uh, I think the vast majority of the people understand the situation. I think they know that uh, that your president Zelensky. I think that he's he's doing the best he can, and he's really he's really having a, having a rough time. But I tell you, I, I I I respect him, and I tell you why I respect him. Before we left Afghanistan, that big Biden debacle, uh, that ballet of bullshit, if I can use the word, that when he totally screwed that up, uh, the the president of Afghanistan fled the country with his family and at least half a million dollars in cash. He didn't even stay to represent his people. At least uh, your president in Ukraine, he declined the offer of evacuation and stayed with his people. That's leadership. That's leadership. I mean, Rommel said, if you're going to lead men into battle, if they can't see the back of your head going into danger, then you're in the wrong profession. Okay, if you're going to lead, you've got to be visible. You have to be able to be seen by your people as caring about their welfare, caring about their outcomes, and taking charge of situations. And if you're an intelligent civilian leader, you basically delegate proper military leadership uh, to the proper authorities. Putin only recently began putting competent leadership into his advanced forces. And because of the, de- de- <laughs> the total deterioration factor of the, of the Russian army, given the lackadaisical op- application of professional training, they don't have a strong non-commissioned officer corps. You can have the best officers in the world, but, if you don't have a good non-commissioned officer corps to take direct hands on charge of those troops in the field with proper training leadership, and skill craft, if you don't have that capability, you can have the most strategically innovative and inventive officers on the planet, but they have to know they can they can rely upon those n c o s to get the job done. Putin doesn't have that, so he's having to send senior generals to the front lines to take charge, and that's where they're getting popped. I think it's great. <laughs> I mean, as a trained sniper myself, I mean, I could only imagine how how my heart would have raced and my pulse pounded if I had had a had an enemy general in my sights. My God, I mean, that'd have been great.
0: Yeah, the the news is um, very much showing only the uh, the Russian tanks getting blown up and stuff like that. But, uh, oh, careful with that. Careful with that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah,
0: but uh, we lost we lost a friend recently who died on the front lines. Um, Leaves behind a wife and two children. Young guy, same age as me, if not, yeah, but the same age as me actually. Successful entrepreneur, has employees, has people working for him, but on the front lines and, and gone. So families devastated for the rest of their life, and also there's economic damage there for the rest of their life as well. So, um, it's it's a very hard situation to be in. So I mean, at the moment Ukrainians they like Biden because that's the president that's in there and getting weapons. They like Boris Johnson. The uh, Zelensky congratulated Boris Johnson because he was in the leadership uh, crisis as well. But... Um,
1: well, I don't really see the Germans helping you out a hell of a lot. I mean, they... Germany, uh, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I would think that... I mean, this is my logic, okay? I'm in the United States. I'm what? 5,000 miles away from you, right? Okay, about about well, 4,000 miles away from you whatever. I'm about four or 5,000 miles away from you, and I'm looking at Ukraine going, that's terrible. But you know what? That's a European problem. That's a European problem. I don't mind us sending that to Ukrainian forces. But in my mind, it, 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 it borders NATO. And NATO cannot get directly involved because Ukraine is not a member uh,
0: of NATO. Your audio is so. cracking up. Can I just... um? Can I pause it for a second to just check because everything's recorded is fine? But I think it's fine. and I just want to check the... Uh, yeah, check. I'll just pause it. So thanks very much for your thoughts on the Russia conflict. I know I really respect your opinions as a known researcher in World War Two and just ancient history in World War One. so it's been really helpful. But what I would like to talk about now is actually your upcoming book on a... You've written on a very interesting period of history and situation about this basically tiger that behaves like the predator from the movie or alien just going around, just killing off villagers one by one over an extended period. So um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just fascinated to know a little bit about the story that you've, you've written about.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, as I said, as I said previously, it's a story that I learned from several different sources, all of whom were Russian. Uh, The best source was a friend of mine in Germany, Uh, her family, she was Russian, uh, living in Germany back about 35 years ago. And, uh, her mother and her family were from the area. And so the story is well known, passed down by word of mouth. So I tried to research it and I couldn't find anything on it. And, um, so I contacted uh, Dr. Victor Yudin in Kamchatka. He is the guy who basically runs the Siberian tiger preservation project and rehabilitation, uh, and he will take, you know, orphaned tiger cubs whose uh, mothers have been killed by poachers or injured tigers who've been wounded by poachers or whatever, and, and he'll uh, rehabilitate them and then try to get them released back into the wild, and, uh, <clears throat> which is a worthy cause for me. And if I make a lot of money with this book, then I'd like to, you know, give his foundation some, some money to help with that project. But uh, I learned about the story. And I thought it was kind of kind of radical. Uh, I'd heard about I'd heard a lot about uh, tigers in Asia, especially in India, uh, going on rampages and killing people. and And I began doing my research uh, on the animal itself. Victor Uden helped, and I did some independent research, talked to specialist zoologists. And uh, of course, it came down to the fact that I wanted to write this story but the research didn't reveal anything that would be considered a primary source because I could find no newspaper articles about it. I couldn't find anything in the historical record. It was all word of mouth, almost like folklore, you know? And I thought, well, every every tale of folklore has some basis in reality. So let me try and, you know, figure this out. So after about Another five or six years of, of research, the best that I could do, even b- before the days of the Internet. When the Internet came about, it really opened up a whole new world of research, of course, as you know. So I wrote this book, and it took me oh, it took me about 25 years and because uh, I had other books to write. I had universities to attend. I had work to do. I had all this other stuff in life that was just thrown at me. So my agent finally got the finished, uh, finished, polished, edited draft. And so she submitted it, and it's sitting with the publisher now. And we're waiting to determine, well, they're waiting to determine, I suppose, if they want to do have me expand the book and finish off the story or keep it as volume one of a trilogy, which is what I want to do. That's why I wrote it as a, as a book volume one in a series, uh, because I wanted each book to cover each of the three years of this tiger's killing, starting in 1923. When the snows fell in october of 23 was when the first killing was uh, recorded and then by the end of the three years uh where the tiger only attacked in winter it never attacked in spring or summer fall it only attacked when the snow fell in the deep in the deepest coldest part of winter and for some reason it just never hit the people in these villages during the warm months and I found that fascinating as well, which also tends to violate tiger behavior. And then I saw a National Geographic show about uh, 20 years ago that was covering a Siberian tiger that killed some people in the 1990s, just a decade before. And, uh, and it began fermenting in my head how I was going to craft the story. So I wrote it and I created characters. I created scenarios. I took a lot of poetic license. So this is not a history book. People who get this book in about a year or two do not read this as a history book. This is a historical novel, my first one, which I ran by uh, a man who I respect a lot. I'd like to call him a friend, uh, Michael Crichton, famous for Jurassic Park, 13th Warrior, and a bunch of other good stories that became books and movies. Uh, Michael Crichton loved the idea. He loved the story, and he gave me some pointers. He gave me some really good editorial pointers on how to move this story along and then he brought me into the authors guild uh he recommended me for the authors guild of which i'm a member and uh and he the one comment he called me once the one comment he said to me before he passed away was he said when you finish this book stephen king is going to hate you because it makes cujo look like an akc kennel show and uh i don't know what cujo is Cujo was a movie that was done from a Stephen King book about a Siberia about a uh about a uh uh dog. It was a uh yeah, I'll read of oh, Saint Bernard. It was a Saint Bernard that got that got rabies and then it went mad and began killing people. And uh so that movie came out like thirty years ago or so, and over thirty years ago, maybe thirty five or so. And that movie uh was basically the beginning of like animal versus man horror movies or something weird like that. And then of course, uh, about 25 years ago, I guess the ghost in the darkness came out with Val Kilmer, Michael Douglas and John Connie. And, uh, that was a story about the two man eating lions in Sabo, Kenya that went on a rampage that, uh, And the movie took a lot of liberties with fact, uh, and I I actually was in that area, so I I understand it quite well. But yeah, I I wanted to write the story, and I wanted to try to give as much historical accuracy as I could, but in writing a book, you have to weave a good story that people want to read. I mean if you just put in tiger jumps through window takes baby jumps out kills people kills this <laughs> yeah. guy kills this guy you know yeah, people yeah. are going to go that's not going to work man you know so i had some really good help from many, pe- many people uh, on this book to uh craft it into a good narrative that would tell a story but also educate people in general so i what i did was not only did i incorporate the tiger and its three-year killing spree uh creating characters and creating people who never existed i had to work with that, which was tough for me because that's not my strong point. But I also wanted to weave in some of the political and historical dynamics that the people in these villages in the early 1920s were dealing with in the very early Soviet Union. Because you have to remember, in 1917, you had the revolution. <clears throat> then you had Russia, Imperial Russia, under the Bolsheviks, uh, pull out of World War I. And that only increased the Western Front pressure because they released those German soldiers from the Eastern Front and moved them to the West. So the Bolsheviks didn't have to fight the Germans anymore. They were free to terrorize this this entire country and bring them in, in, into line with the uh, concepts of Bolshevism and communism. So these people were living uh, in the far eastern reaches of Siberia and Kamchatka Peninsula. So by the time 1923, 24 rolled around, you know, they, they were just now feeling the impact of communism. I mean, cause you're talking about a country that's like 5,000 miles long and, uh, and they didn't have, you know, rapid communication back then. But so you've got the economic crushing economic issues with communism, the political dynamics, the terror of the NKVD, the purging of the churches, the priests. They're all dealing with this, trying to make a living, trying to survive. Now they have this rampaging tiger, just striking fear into everybody, and no one seems to be able to deal with the problem. And uh, so I just wanted to weave that into a good story.
0: You'd think that people would be able to think, like, okay, there's a tiger going around. Why don't we just have, like, spears and be ready for this thing? Unless this thing is just going for the weakest one at the border of the towns and just jumping on them and then getting it quickly like a, like a sniper or something like that.
1: Yeah, pretty much tigers, tigers. Well, mo- most predators will, it, it, I give an example, uh, on the Serengeti plain where, where I was, you know, you'll watch lions, right? Well, you watch a pride of lions or you'll watch a cheetah. Uh, I saw a cheetah with her cubs. She was stalking a gazelle and, uh, they'll always try to locate the weakest link in the herd, which is like nature's way of saying, here's an easier meal. Is it easier to to, to to spend two or three hours preparing a meal for you and your family, or do you, you just go through the drive-thru and get a bag of burgers? Okay? Yeah. Well, yeah. well predators, predators normally, and I've learned this through my research, predators normally don't want to put a lot of extra effort into getting a meal. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's why tigers primarily are ambush predators, whereas lion prides will stalk a herd and, and locate the weakest links, and then they'll go for it. Uh, So this tiger, like most tigers, whether they're Bengal or whether they're Siberian Amur or whether they're, you know, uh, Borneo, uh, tigers are stalking predators and they're ambush predators, uh, like leopards. Uh, Solitary animals have to be stalking uh, predators because they don't have massive numbers like a a pack of wolves. So, uh, and this animal is apparently quite elusive and was very effective. And there have been many stories like that in Siberia about these tigers, even in China uh, and in India, of course. I mean, especially in the Sondarbans region, where the, the largest number of man-eating tigers in history have been recorded. But so
0: I guess yeah. these vil- vil- villagers weren't like in a clearing where they had space between their houses in the woods. They were maybe getting picked off when they were hunting or foraging, that kind of deal, or was this thing coming into their <laughs> camp and?
1: Well, it, at first, at first, it hit livestock. Well, in my book, I don't know what the hell happened really in history. In my book, I, I have it hit. I have it hitting livestock, and then because it's hitting livestock, they identify it as a tiger, which is a fear factor, right? So then they go and they organize a hunting party to track the tiger in the snow, find to find out where its lair is, try and take it out. But then in the book, I I have it in there to where the hunting party decides to set up an ambush for the tiger, but it goes kind of wrong when the tiger decides to counter ambush and kill some of the guys. And so then they take off on a hunting party to hunt the tiger, but then they realize the tiger circled back and is hunting them from behind, uh, which has been known to happen. They're highly intelligent creatures. And, uh, but then finally the realization hits them that they need more help. And the biggest problem was that, uh, under the uh, communist regime, Unless you were a member of the Communist Party later or a member of the Bolshevik Revolution, you couldn't own a gun, so when they confiscated all the guns, they had no way to protect themselves. There was nothing they could do and the mayor of the town in my book has the armory he's got all the weapons, and then finally he realizes that if he doesn't give these guys the weapons, go hunt this tiger he 's going to have an even bigger problem that he has to inform Moscow about and poli- you know political types uh, you know, they don't, they don't like bureaucrats. They don't like to have to send problems higher up the the chain of command. They like to solve problems at the local level. And this was not something, this was not something that a local mayor in a small Siberian cow town is going to want to have to, you know, telegram to Moscow saying, look, I had this tiger killing people. I need help because he's going to look like he's an idiot and and ineffective. Yeah. Yeah. So he has to take, some sort of charge of this operation, so I write that into the book, and then I create the characters, and then I have uh, most of my hunters are former or World War One veterans who were snipers. A couple of them were snipers who served together, uh, and uh, so they they take charge of the hunts. They're, they hunt wolves by profession to keep them from killing the cattle and the livestock, but now they've got to you know learn the, the habits of a tiger, which they're not familiar with, so they're at a disadvantage. And then later on, of course word gets out and uh so the, and we know the red army did come in they sent a company of soldiers and and russian marines in to uh try to help track the tiger and so I, put, I i i put that in the uh the first book and then i the first book ends with those soldiers in transit by train to help with the hunt and uh and then the, the second volume will pick up with the hunt using the soldiers and the marines joining the hunters to track the tiger and try to kill it. Because now it's killing miners, it's, it's killing villagers, livestock, breaking into houses. Now it's getting bolder. Every kill, it gets bolder. But I also had to explain why the tiger would uh, want to attack humans. So I had to get creative, and I created a situation in the book where the tiger would be injured to the point to where it couldn't hunt its natural prey of boar and deer, which is the most common reason why they become man-eaters. Normally, tigers avoid human beings. They avoid human contact. Unless they're starving, then they have no choice because they can't hunt their natural prey. So I got creative with that. Talked to talked to some people about how I could incorporate that. I had a good idea. put it in there. And uh, so anyway, that's where we are, man. I'm just waiting to see what uh, how the contract looks and if it's worth signing.
0: So what kind of non gunpowder weapon with an average jungle man need to defeat a tiger
1: well bows crossbows uh long spears but the problem is that anytime you have close quarters weapons and bows and crossbows are medium range weapons which are okay but you have to have got to understand something if you've got a tiger 100 yards away from you and you fire a good solid shot into it. If it's not an immediate kill shot, you will never get a second chance to restring to, to, to get that second arrow off before that tiger's on you. So you'd have to have multiple uh, multiple hunters with multiple bows uh, to engage that tiger at the same time, simultaneous firing, or what we call focus fire, as you know from World of Tanks. And uh, so you focus on the so you focus on the target. And uh, and hopefully multiple impacts result in a dead animal. Uh, but yeah, uh, without modern weaponry, you really don't have much of a chance against one of these animals. It'd be the if same a, thing as
0: if... If you had a katana blade, you could probably do it in one good... good hit.
1: Well, maybe. And you're hoping that you don't have 600 to 800 pounds of tiger on you as you try to swing that blade. Because then you've got a... Make sure that if you do swing that blade and you are good with it and you have a sharp enough blade and a strong enough arm that you have decapitated that, that animal. Because if you have it and you just wounded it, then it's going to make you an even even uh, less of a happy meal when it's done with you.
0: Because I've seen James Williams with the saw and he just go, cuts through these uh, bamboo shoots like butter. Um Imagine. yeah but
1: bamboo, but bamboo shoots aren't charging at you with a uh, with, uh, six to eight inch paws with claws and teeth. There's a big yeah, yeah. difference, you know, and you uh I can only imagine having over 600 pounds of tiger coming at you, covering about uh, you know 25, 30 meters a second, running at about really? 30, 30, 30, 35 miles per hour at about 60 kilometers per hour, 70 kilometers per hour running at you. And you have enough werewolf all in your head to be prepared to release the release the, the uh, katana from the scabbard and then precision strike your shot before mm-hmm. that tiger is on you. So as far as sword against tiger, I'm going to give it to the tiger.
0: Well, you could uh, almost sort of jump out of the way to your left or to your right in time. But then again, I've tried to beat my dog, like, agile left to right velocity. The dog was just so much quicker to to sort of out of the you're way. Not,
1: No, you're not gonna outmaneuver a tiger. I mean, understand something. For a tiger to catch deer, he has to be able to maneuver very fast and and change his angle of attack, change his angle of approach, zigzag, you know. No human being is going to outmaneuver a tiger or any or any feline predator. It's not gonna happen. I and mean, also
0: all of these animals have a different CPU clock speed, so their time can be like they see us moving slower because their CPU or whatever its frame rate is, is higher. So it looks like they, a lot of like birds will look at us as walking about in slow motion because if you see two birds chasing each other, they'll like do it like within a split second, like all these quick maneuvers. So I guess that's all another advantage animals have over us humans.
1: Well, not just that also, but a tiger has six times better eyesight than the best human. So,
0: you know... Is that what, in terms of zoom or what, like, resolution? Oh, yeah,
1: I mean resolution zoom and night vision and uh so you uh you're it's gonna see you and smell you long before you know it's there and uh that's another disadvantage so but i i factor every single i spent years putting all these ingredients into the book to make it as believable as possible, to make it as entertaining as possible and educational. I wanted people not just to see a mad tiger killing people, but I wanted people to understand the the biometrics of the animal. So I studied the biology of the creatures. I studied their habits. I got great help from Dr. Uden and some others. I wanted people to see the magnificence of the creature. Yeah, okay, it's killing people, but why? Because it was injured and it was partially crippled, so it couldn't stalk is natural prey so it had to go to the easiest food source available but i wanted people to have to come out of this with a respect for the animal you know and uh i don't want people reading this book or the trilogy however it works out and i even have film interest right now with a couple of producers who want me to have a meeting with them actually in fact back with kevin Sor- kevin sorbo and uh and a couple of others but and you know Kevin, of course. But uh, but as far as uh, the story itself, I wanted people to, to, to walk away from the books and the, the movie or series, whatever we make, with a, a, an impact, a story that impacts them historically, politically, emotionally. But I want them to walk away with a healthy respect for the animal. I don't believe any animal, no species should be hunted to extinction. That's the most ridiculously stupid thing we human beings can do besides fratricidal warfare. You don't extinct a species. <laughs> That's It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. I mean, the white rhino is now extinct outside of zoos. Okay? The black rhino, I think, is uh, effectively on the way out as well. And, you know, I showed you a picture maybe a long time ago of me with a black rhino that I met in Kenya. Interesting. But I want people to understand and respect the animal and understand and respect the fact that we have to protect these habitats for these creatures. Yes, we have to clear, build, plant, whatever we have to do. But we have to set aside areas of nature for these animals to at least survive, if not thrive. That's the mission that I have with the book.
0: Okay. So you wouldn't think that it would be a good idea to get rid of the bears in America for people that are outdoor people and they're just – Always afraid of bears and their life would be improved if they had like, okay, only the bears are allowed here but not all over America?
1: Well, I don't think, first of all, animals don't understand boundaries and borders. Okay. Animals don't read signs that say, you know, deer crossing. I love it when I see a sign that says deer crossing as if you expect deer to read that sign and say, okay, this is a safe place to go across the road. Uh, I mean, any place could be a deer crossing. I think that If you are going to be a human being living out in an area, and and, and many places are like this. Uh, One of the problems we have in this country are mountain lions, cougars, right? There was just a situation a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in Washington State or Oregon where a young girl was attacked by a male, a young male mountain lion. And her friends took off, left her hanging, and she was fighting back. And people came up and saved her, got her to the hospital. And... uh, Oregon. It was Oregon. And, uh, and then they tracked the mountain lion down and killed it. They have to kill it. If it attacks a human being, you have to take it out. And to me, that's a great tragedy. Why did the mountain lion attack the child? What was the catalyst? Uh, I'm sure they did a forensic autopsy to determine if there was any sort of injury to the animal that prevented it from hunting its natural game. But who knows? But I, I think that if you're going to coexist, I, I feel safer being out in the wilderness with bears and mountain lions and other creatures I feel – because most of the time they're going to avoid you anyway. I feel safer being out on the Serengeti plain amongst a pride of lions than I do in the average American city run by liberals with high violence.
0: The alarm is just telling us that the air raid is finished, so ignore that sound as well, Colin, and listeners. Oh,
1: don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I understand the situation. But no, so the book – the first book has been written. Excuse me. And if they decide they want to uh expand that and make it a, a one large volume, I can do that. Or if they want to do the trilogy, uh then I can do that as well. So we just have to wait and see what happens. What's this authors guild? Is that an American thing? No, it's international. Authors guild. If you're a published writer and you qualify, you can be nominated, then you submit your C V, uh, they look you up and they check your your established publication credits. You can't be self published. You have to be published by if you're a magazine writer like I was uh, a book writer like I am now, if you have established uh, copyrights, ISBNs, reputable publishers, then you can a- apply. And it's a good organization. Uh, they pay dues. It's like one thirty-five a year to join. But I've been with them since two thousand two, I think, or two thousand one. But uh, but they also provide uh, you know legal services to members if you. I give an example I mean I had a situation where I wrote a biography an auto I wrote a biography in conjunction with the subject He didn't want the, an autobiography in his own words he wanted me to write the book so I wrote the, I wrote the book and uh, and he was still alive and he went through the manuscript and he signed off on it oh, I love it, love it, love it and then I thought well as a as a gesture as out of respect for the family, I sent the book to the family to review and they didn't tell me they didn't like the book next thing I know, I've got lawyers on me and the publisher <laughs> because they didn't like it because they there was a lot of stuff in there. He told me and other people that he never told his family. Well, I guess to them it was a revelation that, oh, my God, we didn't know this. We didn't know this, uh, which might have not been, you know, totally flattering to, to the collective on their side of the house. But, I, you know, out of respect for them, I never published the book. I mean, we pulled it because I, I, I don't uh, I give another example. I was working with uh, I may mean, have told you before. I was working with Tawny Catan, Julie Catan. Tawny was her stage name, nickname. Uh, she was very famous in the '80s in actor, an actress with Tom Hanks in the movie The Bachelor Party. She did a lot of TV shows. She was the uh, David uh ex-wife from from uh, White Snake. She did all the videos with White Snake. You may remember her rolling over the hood of the Jaguar anyway, but if you look up Tawny Katan, White Snake Videos, that's Tawny. Anyway, so a couple of years ago, she contacted me and uh, wanted me to help her write her autobiography. So and she knew everybody in the music business and most people. She dated Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, she was she I mean, she just knew everybody. And she traveled for three years with Van Halen on the tour bus. Her, Her boyfriend at the time was their road manager. So she told me all these crazy stories about David Lee Roth and Eddie and uh, Alex Van Halen and and, uh, Michael Anthony. And so it it was a story that was so sorted and so crazy that I thought, well, this is going to be a very good this will be a very good book. This book could be a bestseller because of all the crazy stories she had in there. And the the O.J. Simpson story, I don't know if you know about the O.J. Simpson story from from this country, but uh, anyway, but he was acquitted of double murder when everybody and his dead brother believes he actually committed the murders. And he was one of America's largest sports stars uh, and actors. Um, She dated him and then she gave revelations about how she knew he was guilty and all of this. So all of this, these were notes that I had. We had meetings like this. We had phone calls, text messages. In fact, I still saved uh, the text messages on my phone. But she died last year, May 7th. Uh, we were supposed to have a meeting with a producer about doing a TV show. She and I together a series uh, called uh, history, "The His- History and Music in the 80s. And we were going to have a meeting with a Canadian producer about doing a show where she would be the producer host. And I would be like the guest historian with her on TV talking about what was going on in history in the 80s during the Reagan years. But what music was popular at the time that the Soviets were in Afghanistan, things of that nature. So anyway, I was right, helping her get all her information together to write her story, and then she died. Uh, of the. Co- I'm, I'm certain it was the COVID vaccine that killed her, because she would always call me and tell me how she felt after she got the first shot and the second shot. And, and I'm like, I think that COVID vaccine did you in. Uh, reminds me of Kevin
0: Torbo's friend who played, I think, his wife
1: in The Legendary Journeys or something like that. That woman. Well, that was Tawny. Tawny played his wife. That was Tawny Catan. She played his wife in the, in the Hercules series. Right. Yeah. That was taunting. Yeah. Right. That's her. And right. so I was doing, I was working with her for about, uh, for about a year on a regular basis and, uh, getting the notes together for her book. Then she died. And then I got contacted by a reporter from the sun, sun time, sun news or something. And, and other people knew that I was working with her on the book as a ghostwriter. I was not going to be a co-author. I was just going to be the ghostwriter, uh, for her. And uh, then I get a call from a guy who is apparently some celebrity radio disc jockey or some weirdness, whatever. And, and he was a friend of hers in the family. And he called me up back in July of last year, I think it was. And he asked me, was I still going to write the book? Did I have enough material to write the book? And I said, I got plenty of material to write a book. And he said, well, are you, are you still going to write it since she passed away? And I said, no, I'm not going to write the book because it wouldn't be fair to her family. It wouldn't be fair to her legacy because she's not alive to critique the manuscript. You know, I'm not a sensationalist writer. I'm not going to write the unauthorized biography because I don't do that kind of work. Yeah, I can make a lot of money with it, and I have her permission. I've got her on, I've got her recorded. But I don't want to write something about someone else's life unless they can at least approve what the content, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do a hit piece.
0: Being a writer seems like quite a, challenging profession because you have to invest this massive sink of time into something where you can have an event where it doesn't get published or some someone passes away because um, I would like to write a book, couple of books myself at some point um, but it's just getting that focus to do it is, is tr- tricky and in stories like this are also kind of off-putting becoming an author.
1: <laughs> well, writing the me Writing to me comes fairly naturally when it comes to actual events, history, because I can research it. And I I have hundreds of interviews to draw from, which any one of those interviews may touch upon the subject I'm writing about, which helps because that gives me a first-person perspective on the uh, period of time that I'm dealing with. Then there's the primary research, which primary research takes critical time because you have to go to archives, you have to get materials, you have to get data and all this stuff. Uh... Then secondary, secondary uh, research material, books, published books. You have to vet those. What books are good? What are bad? What book has accurate information? What book is fantasy and hyperbole? You don't know until you read them. And my first book I ever published had uh, a 240-some-odd page bibliography with like 5,000 books and articles in it because I did so much research on it. That was when I was at Strathclyde. I was in the uh, gra- you know, postgraduate program. And, and I got two books out of that research. So, But no, as far as writing, for me, I find that 70% of my time is research and 30% of the time is uh, writing and editing. Research takes the most time.
0: Do you think that um, books, historical books, are going down in popularity because people have so much like information on YouTube where they can just sit and watch some animation of all these fancy graphics and somebody's saying this, is this and this and this and then there's like 10 other videos made from the same thing with clickbait titles and that and people are just like wanting that quick fix.
1: I think so. I think book readership is down for several reasons. That's one of them. You just outlined a good reason that people, we live in a, a global society for the most part, at least in the industrialized West, uh, where people want Immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction, immediate resolution to a conflict. Okay, it's, I, I give you the analogy that's been used many times. I didn't create this. It's just it's out there in, in, in the in the ethos. Uh, like people watch an hour long crime show on TV. Guys murdered, police investigate, forensics do the lab work, they track down a suspect. They, they get a confession out of him or it goes to trial. And in one hour, they've solved an entire murder. People like that. It's it's encapsulated. It's compartmentalized. It's done rapidly. When in actuality, some murder cases take three or four or five years or even decades to solve. Okay? Even if you know who the perpetrator is, you have to have evidence, okay, to, to formally charge someone. Uh, anyway, but people like that. People like to have rapid solutions and resolutions to issues they don't people don't think anymore uh the vast majority of people don't want to think they're too busy you know playing nintendo or 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 whatever the hell they do many people are just trying to make a living they don't have the luxury of time to kick back and enjoy war and peace okay (laughs) or or read charles dickens uh which was one of my favorites as a kid um They don't have the time. And if they do find the time, then something else creeps into the equation. So what what do they do? They go to the graphic novels, which are easy to read or illustrated. They give the basic information. And if they're good graphic novels, it's good historical information, but it's not in-depth. Or they'll go to the YouTube videos. Like you said, they go to YouTube. That's why Michael and I started doing the YouTube videos to give people some information, some historical context on subjects, you know, to build up an interest. But there are that small group of dedicated people who will read, who do read, and uh, I call those apex literary predators. They're the people that actually will go to the library or look on Amazon. They have a subject or a genre that they like to read about, and they'll buy the books. And those are the kind of people who buy my books. I'm never going to be Stephen King or Michael Crichton or John Grisham because – I don't work in those areas of fantasy, genre, or, or, or uh, surrealism, uh, with exception to this Tiger book, which made <laughs> life on its own. I don't know. I'm a historian. I write history. I like to write stories about people doing crazy things. The Star of Africa was one of the most enjoyable books I ever wrote. I enjoyed writing that book because I had... All the interviews are already done. I had the research done. All I had to do was sit down and synthesize the data and put it in chronological order and, and do a proofread and get it, get it, get it edited. That's all I had to do. And a lot of people like that book. I mean, I have a lot of producers who like it. We just need producers who have investors <laughs> to, to pay us the money to make the, the film or the series. But yeah, you're must- right. A lot, a lot of people would rather watch a video than read a book.
0: I'm trying to do some stuff on YouTube, but I'll I'll send you my slides uh, once I've done it. Yet I haven't decided if I'm going to actually do this do the video on um post World War three type thing. But uh, I'm looking at research and reading some scientific papers I've done on nuclear fallout and that kind of stuff, and practicing my bushcraft. But uh, I'm not I'm not interested at all in like um, sensationalism and like fancy graphics and all that stuff. It's going to be a, a pure PowerPoint presentation, boring and dry. That's that's how you get facts across, you know?
1: Well, just remember, post-apocalyptic zombies have been done.
0: Yeah, this this is more about like eating insects and that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> oh hell, eating insects! Just just go to, come come to the U.S. military and go to survival school. You need all the all the bugs you can find, man.
0: I would love to. Do it, up, man.
1: I'd love to do. It. I, I I remember living off grasshoppers and stuff. You know, just pull the back legs off and eat them. They're not bad, actually. Did not cook them. Well, if you're trying to escape and evade pursuers, you don't have time to build a fire.
0: Apparently, insects are very <laughs> – even if you eat insects raw, apparently you can't really get anything from them because the diseases are so different from our genetics.
1: Yeah, most most insects are safe. I mean, I wouldn't consider eating a millipede, but uh, that would be a different story because they carry toxins, They could, and some of them are very poisonous. Right, right. Uh, I wouldn't eat spiders. Uh but uh, the grasshoppers, crickets, you know, things of that nature, they're high in protein. What,
0: what, uh, what, what year did you go to survival school?
1: Uh, we ran one in Germany up in, up in the mountains. That was 84. And then here's the funny part. They gave us, uh, at, the end, at the end of it all, they gave us each two-man team a live chicken. So that was our, uh, that was our survival reward i already you know basically we got they gave us a live chicken and we had to make it last a week so how do you make a one chicken last a week you get creative but i do what to do so we were fine well
0: you basically got to take the feathers out and smoke it
1: yeah you smoke it you just build a you build a pit and you and you take some uh take some kindling and you put it in there you get the fire good going well then you get the coals going you get about maybe 12 inches to 18 inches deep and then you uh run a stick through it, put it on the other side, you cover it with some fabric or some uh, ter- whatever you need to cover it with to keep the smoke in and you, and you smoke it, you know. It takes about a full day to smoke that sucker, but then you've got it dried out pretty much and then you can just put it in your uh, in your rucksack and pull a piece off when you need it.
0: Mm-hmm. I've, I've basically become a, a brief, bushcraft fanatic, absolutely. This whole thing in Ukraine, basically, when I saw people like cooking water for snow and then all the refugees just totally, totally dependent on Western aid. Probably, you know, I thought, man, this, this, this should happen to anybody. So I need to, I need to start getting up on this stuff. So my current adventures have took me to basically cooking nettles, um, trying to strip, uh, making cordage from nettles. You know, like um, nettles were in World War Two were apparently quite popular in London and Greece for nutrition because nettles are apparently one of the most nutritious plants in the world. Um, stinging nettles. I, I mean, I don't know if you've Used them before, but that's what I've got into a bit. Um,
1: well, I know, I know all about I know all about Greece, the uh, occupation, the starvation policy. Goering, Hermann Goering created the starvation policy. By the way, most people don't realize that, but Hermann Goering, commander in chief of the Luftwaffe, created the starvation policy in Greece. What, what, what happened with that? Oh, that was in 1940, 1941. Uh, mm-hmm. He came up with the idea. Hitler thought it was a good one. And uh, by 1943, uh, I think 20% of the Greek population had died of starvation. I mean, they confiscated the food, they blocked the ports, they owned the ports, they occupied Greece, and they expropriated livestock and, and agriculture to send it back to Germany to be dispensed to uh, the German military and civilians at the expense of the Greek inhabitants. And uh, and they, a lot of Greeks starved to death. It was It was bad. There's this, a good the, book there's a good book about that too. Uh, in uh, in fact the book is called Inside Hitler's Greece. I suggest you read it. You might like it. I have a copy here as well. But inside inside Hitler's
0: Hitler, Greece.
1: Yeah, Inside Hitler's Greece. I could pull the copy off the shelf if I left if I left this chair. But Inside Hitler's Greece, Mark Mazower. The art, the uh historian's name is Mark Mazower. M A Z W O W E R. Good reviews. So Mark yeah, Mark Mazower, good historian, solid research, and he wrote a, he wrote that book, and that book is phenomenal. I mean, that book, if, if you read only one book on the German occupation of Greece, get Mark Mazower's book. That book will tell you all you need to know. So save sure yourself a lot, a lot of, of time.
0: I'm sure there'll be a lot of books written about Butcher and Irpin and Hostemil and Mariupol in the future.
1: I, I think that uh, – I get I don't know if you saw the, the podcast – the uh, well, the YouTube video, rather, that Mike and I did on Putin's war crimes, what he could be charged with. Uh, I don't
0: think I have seen it.
1: Forgotten History YouTube, uh, Putin's War. Click onto that. We did a uh, – I basically – this was about three or four months ago, but I went through every single chronicled event that we had up to that time. Now we have more. But I gave a complete list of all of the international war crimes Vladimir Putin and his senior officers and soldiers could be charged with from what we know. And I went through the Geneva Geneva Convention, and I hit every single article they violated so far up to that point that Mm -hmm. we did the video. Uh, Those have since increased. But all of the – well, the incidences of violations have increased, but those same articles aren't going to change. They're the same articles. But – But the book that I did, that did not sell very well, but it was highly acclaimed in the military and legal circuits, was uh, my book, Occupation and Insurgency," where I looked at the Eastern Front. I looked at German and I looked at Soviet actions, massacres, atrocities, mass murders. And I looked at all of these events uh, from both sides, and then I compared and contrasted, okay, the Germans did this in this village, and it was horrible. But wait a minute, was it really a war crime? And if you go to Geneva of 1929, look up the article and the specific statute, then no, it wasn't a war crime. Yeah, they killed these two or 300 villagers, but was it justified under the laws of war, under Geneva, Article 4, Section 6? Some messed order. up laws, yeah. though. <laughs> well, you have to understand that later, after World War II, they revised the Geneva Convention. Geneva Convention Number 4 was revised in 1949 to amend and correct the errors and gaps in 1929. You have to understand something. The Geneva Convention of 1929, when World War I was over and the Geneva Convention of 1929, Geneva Geneva III, was convened to basically revise the rules of warfare, World War One didn't have a holocaust in Europe. Yeah, the Armenians got screwed by the Turks, but that was an irrelevant factor. The Turks lost the war, screw them. But uh There was no Holocaust. I mean, there was no massive industrialized murder machine as occurred in World War II. So that was one of the reasons why Geneva 49 was written and they updated 29 to include crimes against humanity. Remember in 1946 at the first Nuremberg trials, the first time in history that any nation or any military leadership had ever been charged with crimes against humanity. It had never existed before. Okay, they just came up with that, like, well, that makes sense to me. We'll charge them with crimes against humanity. And it makes sense to me as well. But it had never occurred before. So there had never been a law against it before. There -hmm. had been laws against punishing civilians for military action. That was in the Hague Convention of 1907 covers that. But there had never been a genocide article or genocide uh, generated necessity to revise the laws of war. And World War II totally changed all of that. And if the Soviet Union had lost the war, then the Germans would have done the same damn thing to Stalin and his people because of what they were doing to German prisons of war, Romanians, Hungarians, Bulgarians, Italians, uh, the Japanese, for instance. And, and the Japanese atrocities, I mean, my God, you could do a whole show on that and uh, on what they did throughout Southeast Asia. I mean, hell, they made Hitler look like an amateur. The only reason Hitler... You know, was effective. Was he industrialized the mass murder process? The Japanese didn't have trains, crematoria, gas chambers, and uh, and dedicated units of Einsatzgruppen out there whacking people. The Japanese just systematically killed everything they came across, and uh, and were quite cruel in their application of their uh, of their occupation. So, uh, but Geneva of 1949 was re- rewritten to address those issues in future conflicts. And, I, and, and man, Putin has violated a lot of those already. And he better hope he dies in office. He better hope he dies of cancer or has a stroke or maybe somebody just puts a bullet in the back of his head. Because if he ever got caught by by the International Tribunal, uh, I, he wouldn't have a good time. Understand something. Just because Putin's gone doesn't mean that the next idiot uh, yeah. oligarch with delusions of grandeur is not going to step right up and take his place. Yeah. But I I think this, and I'm using Russian history as the benchmark, my litmus test basically for Putin. I think that if Putin dies or if he's arrested or if he's incarcerated, whatever the hell takes him out of the equation, I think the Russian people are going to rise the hell up. And demand a fair and free election. And I don't think anyone in their right mind replacing Putin is going to want to fight against the population's will to have free and fair elections. The Bolshevik Revolution Revolution changed history for the world. I think the post-Putin Revolution would do the same damn thing.
0: What do you think that would look like?
1: I think that what you would have are some candidates... Uh, who would step up there and have an election process. You would have some Putin acolytes, some some hardcore believers who would want to support a pro-Putin-style candidate. Why? Because they want to maintain power. It's all about power. The Russians have one common denominator that is rarely, rarely served outside of that country, unless it's China, North Korea, Iran, whatever, is the Russian people admire strong man rule. They like strong man rule, but they want fair rule. Okay? They want fairness. They don't mind a strong leader. A strong leader is good for a country, but you have to be fair in your application of law and logic. You can't be strong like Stalin, but, you know, purge 30,000 senior officers because you don't like their politics or you think that their politics might cause you a problem later. So you eradicate your general staff and then, war comes and you don't have anyone competent to run the damned army okay that seems to be uh, what putin
0: also did because he, he he didn't he didn't allow his army to have autonomy because he wants to maintain power as a dictator but that means that when they fight ukraine they were really weak
1: well yeah understand something too that stalin putin putin is a student of stalin's methods and he idolized stalin okay Stalin had a method of, appla- of, of, of using his commanders, of, a, of a, basically appointing his commanders, just like Hitler did, okay? Just like Eisenhower did, okay? Every, every supreme leader, MacArthur, every supreme leader chooses his junior leadership, meaning general leadership, uh, to run his armies based upon several criteria. But Stalin was a little bit different. Stalin wanted to choose the best and brightest people he could find to get the job done, only if they were not a political threat to his power. Okay? If they were not politically popular with the people, they were good to go. But if they were very popular with the Soviet people and might make him look bad, or even Zhukov. Zhukov was the most popular marshal in the Soviet Union. And Zhukov made Stalin look good. But the problem with Zhukov was Zhukov also had a large mass following. Okay, and people loved him. Well, Stalin really couldn't tolerate that. So he retired him and let him go live in his dacha and chill out, whatever. Uh, But yeah, it's all about ego and paranoia. If you have a large ego and a lot of paranoia, you put those two together in a leader, you got a problem. Okay, you have a real problem. And Putin is the manifestation of post-Stalinist egotism and paranoia. Why do you think so many of his senior political and military aides that are not killed in Ukraine are disappearing? You don't hear from these people. Where is his, where's his, uh where's his secretary of defense? Where did he go? Where, where did all you? these people, where do where did all these people go who were advisors to Putin? And if they were advisors to Putin about Ukraine, then they should have lost their jobs. I'm kind of thinking they're dead. Uh, or they're probably locked up in the, some, some, some far Western Siberian uh, gulag somewhere. But uh, people like Putin cannot afford two things. They can't afford to lose face on the, on the uh, international stage and at home. And they cannot afford to, to appear to be weak. Either one of those things can be lethal to a, to a totalitarian leader, or at least a leader who wants to be totalitarian or, or, or
0: oligarchical. This basically invites a coup, right?
1: That... It, it invites a coup, but what it does is it shows the people that their leader is not infallible. Understand that... Look at North Korea as an example. The founder of North Korea, the people in North Korea to this day, some of the peasants and some of the lesser educated people, and most of those people aren't well educated. You got Kim Il-sung, you got uh, Kim Jong-il now, and, and you got all these other idiots. But the founder of North Korea after World War II, who created the, the communist North Korean regime, the people there don't even they were propagandized to the point where they did not even believe that he went to the bathroom
0: king Osung. Il- king
1: yeah they don't even think he took they don't even think he went to the toilet because he was so divine okay that he, he, he it's incredible the amount of propaganda with these people that could actually have a human being violate logic in a belief system, and whether they truly believe that or if they just go along with the program because they have to, I don't know. But I, I, I've heard stories from the Korean defectors, and they, and when they defect, if they survive to defect, and they tell these stories, they're they're talking about decades of this propaganda and, de- and all the true stories of the horrors going on inside North Korea. And uh, Albania had the same situation up until the 90s. Uh, Albania was the European version of North Korea. It was closed off communist, you know. Uh, Ever since the end of World War II, King Zog and his clowns, you know, uh, once the war was over and the communists hit that country, it became a hermit kingdom. Closed off from the world. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, when you get these leaders in these positions of power, they want to keep power. Why do you keep power? Well, first of all, You can be charismatic and be like a Zelensky type where the people all like you until the point in time comes where you do something stupid and they don't like you and they remove Mm -hmm. you. Or you can be authoritarian, like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, people like that. You can be authoritarian or you can be a blend of the two. You can be authoritarian in your presentation showing that you have authority. But you can also merge the charismatic leadership style into that, to where people see you as a human being, for one thing. Although, you, yeah, okay, you're, you're calling the shots, you're the ruler. But you're charismatic, you're it's like... But like Putin. More like Tito. More like, uh... more like Joseph Broach Tito. Tito was a communist, but he wasn't Stalin's kind of communist. And Stalin kept trying to send assassination teams to kill him, just like Hitler did during the war. And uh, I... I his, uh, his, his secretary of state, Milovan Gilas, I interviewed Milovan Gilas. He told me the whole damn story about the, the years he spent with Tito and going to Moscow, talking with Stalin on Tito's behalf and this, that, and the other. And uh, Gilas <laughs> told me some crazy stories, insane stories about the assassination teams coming in to kill Tito because Stalin wanted Yugoslavia pulled into the Warsaw Pact. Well, Tito was smart enough to say, well, we're not going to do that because, first of all, we do a lot of trade with Europe. Do you remember the movie Kelly's Heroes? No. Okay, Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Don Rickles, uh, Donald Sutherland is a classic American film. It's made about it's a World War II movie, right. and it's loo- it's loosely based upon 1970s. a real event. Yeah, Kelly's Heroes. Right. Made in 1970. They made that movie in Yugoslavia
0: huh.
1: because Tito had opened the country up to Western capital.
0: Right.
1: Well, he was doing the same damn thing in the early 50s before Stalin died in May of 53. And remember remember the car the Yugo? No, the old Yugo? It was like a it was like a a two-cylinder wooden well metal car with wooden frame, metal metal bodywork. There's a Yugo. It was sold in the States and it was called the cheapest form of transportation known to man. You could buy a new <laughs> Yugo for like 3 2 or 3000 dollars or some weirdness. Mm-hmm. It was made in Yugoslavia. That's why it was called the Yugo. So they they had uh a good system that was not a free market capitalist system as we know it. It was a socialist system, not a communist system, whereas you still had free enterprise to a certain degree, but the government controlled everything, wages, jobs, import, export. The government controlled all that, just like a Nazi Germany. But you did have the opportunity to become wealthy through entrepreneurship and your individual abilities. Tito allowed that. Stalin wasn't having any of it. Well, Putin is a Stalinist with a Tito complex. He likes the authoritarian rule. He likes the power, but he also likes making money. No one knows how wealthy Putin is. He's, got to be, he's probably richer than uh, Elon Musk, given all of his contacts. But all these oligarchs around the world who are billionaires didn't become billionaires because they were crafty dudes who had good resumes and made wise investments. They became oligarchs because they had a strongman Putin co- covering their ass on deals, energy deals, uh, mining rights, things of that nature. So when you have a guy running a country who is economically, politically as corrupt as Putin, and ruthless, by the way, and he has his circle of friends, as long as his circle of friends are making money and they're all happy, that is his buffer zone. Those are the people who are going to protect Putin because Putin protects mm-hmm. them. Now no, that's going away.
0: Side.
1: Now it's going away. Yeah. So where's, where's Putin's protective blanket?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. That's one of the reasons why I think his time on earth is not very long. At least not as a free man, because at some point in time, some general is going to hear Putin say something at a luncheon and go, well, you know what, it's getting kind of bad. So I think we're going to just drop a tactical nuclear device, maybe a five kiloton device, and maybe we'll just wipe out, you know, four or five square miles of this area. And then we'll just move our guys in with NBC radiation suits and we'll just occupy this and we'll just eradicate these Ukrainian vermin. And, 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 And some guy with common sense, more common sense than rank is going to go, you know what? This guy's got to go. I mean, understand Hitler had 30 he may plots. He might be willing to, to
0: die for that as well.
1: He may be willing to die for it. Others did. I mean, Hitler had 30 plots to kill him. Four of them almost succeeded. Okay. And, and people died in the process. Some of them. George Elser, Klaus von Stauffenberg. I mean, you know, people like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Putin's going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time within earshot of the right person. And I think, and I'm quite sure that there's already a plan to take him out. There's yeah, no thinks, doubt in my right, mind. So. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that there's already a, a coalition of the willing kicking back and, and, and working out the best way to remove him from the equation. Because, first of all, Russia's not, okay, with the Europeans s- slowing down their purchase of Russian oil and gas, okay, they're slowing it down. Well, see, Putin could have never launched that war in Ukraine if he wasn't making megabucks because Biden killed our domestic petroleum program. We're short three to five million barrels a day in this country. And, and even if we have it, he, some of the refineries have closed down because of Biden's Green New Deal idiocy. You can't refine the You can't refine the petroleum. So what do you do? Well, you ship the raw petroleum out or you just uh, let it sit in storage facilities. It's, and, this is weird
0: with this whole green new deal because you you have two forces that are pulling us in different directions you have this whole let's get more solar and we'll I, love, I love solar, but then let's let's make more oil and gas because we have run out of a whole bunch of it you know
1: it's like it's well here, 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 well here's your problem with 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 windmills, okay with wind turbines and solar they're not a hundred percent effective even if you have solar. And if you have a large enough battery storage facility to store the energy, at some point in time, you're going to have a period of time where you're not going to have enough gamma radiation or ultraviolet light peeping through the clouds to give you enough solar heat. So you have to store the energy somewhere. And right now, technology makes the batteries about the size of a small house. So that's just the way it is. And then you've got your wind, your wind turbines with the wind deriving you know, your electricity. Well, here's a problem with that, and, and any Green New Deal person listening to this, progressive idiots, here, here's a basic science and economic lesson for you, so re- so record this. You can't make a damn solar panel or a windmill without petroleum products, hello, and also the electric cars you want to drive, where the hell are you, how are you going to make them? You can't make the body of a car, whether it's fiberglass, plastic, or steel, without, hello, petroleum or fossil fuels to generate the heat to forge and make the steel or the fiberglass or the plastic. And after you wreck that vehicle or it dies or the wind turbine blades get all chipped out from birds hitting it or the solar panels, have a tree fall on them, you need to make more solar panels, you can't make those without petroleum. And if you do take off those old turbine blades and replace them, you still got to have petroleum to put new turbine blades on the damn windmill anyway. And then when you have the windmill spinning, how the hell are you going to lubricate it? Petroleum, fossil fuel. Oh my God, we can't have fossil fuel. Well, then I guess your turbines are going to grind into dust because they're not going to be lubricated. You people are fools. You're idiots. You have a short range vision component in your brain housing group. You can't think beyond the next new idea that generates a popular vote mentality in your next uh, local election. You can't think 10, 20 years down the road. Oh, You talk about, we're going to be totally petroleum-free by 2050, 2030. You don't know that. Hell, Cortez, the idiot congresswoman from New York, said the world was going to end in like 9 to 12 years if we uh, didn't go green. Well, she said that like seven years ago. I don't see the world crumbling right now because we're uh, we're still putting gas in our cars. The stupidity of these people is stunning to me they don't they don't use logic and and i think mm-hmm. they expect the average person to be dumb enough to believe their crap this is this is absolute nonsense and people who are stupid enough to elect these people deserve everything they get i only ask that you go back to california new york washington oregon Uh, Wherever your liberal enclave was that you evacuated from because of the very policies you voted for forced you to flee those states in the first place because of taxes and crime, please go back to the places you left and let us build a wall around your shit so we can keep you the hell out of real America. Okay, we don't want your garbage here. We don't want your liberal politics. We don't want your progressive agenda. We don't want your cross-dressing, storytelling transvestites in our public schools. We don't want you convincing five-year-olds that they may have a gender issue. We don't want any of that crap. Okay, so why don't you keep that in in the enclaves of San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. Keep that in the areas where where, where the collectively stupid multiply if they don't abort themselves. Okay but they multiply and and keep that mindset there, localized. Don't export it, because it's like like smallpox. If you've got it, you quarantine something. Well, progressive liberalism is like smallpox. I say you quarantine that thing. You don't let it spread. You want to put masks on and and keep people locked up because of COVID-19? How about we quarantine the country from idiot liberalism? Okay, That's
0: that's my idea, anyway. Some of the stuff that Sam Sorbo is telling her podcast is just unbelievable with this whole, like they're bringing like sex toys to school and stuff like that and doing like demonstrations. Yeah.
1: Yep. You know? like, yep. they're, yep. <laughs> they're bringing sex toys to school. They're having cross-dressing. They're having men dressed as women, the cross-dressing transvestite, uh, gender fluid, whatever the hell that means. Gender fluid. I mean, I understand li- liquid fluid. I understand hydraulic fluid, but I don't understand gender fluid. Uh, Yeah, they're bringing all this sexual orientation material into the public schools. I have a granddaughter, okay? The marine instinct in me, when I hear of some kid being subjected to that kind of sexual exploitation in a public school, makes me want to walk in there in my mind. I wouldn't do it in reality because it's illegal. But there's a part of me that wants to walk into a public school, find one of these transvestite educators... Uh giving the sexual education or sexual miseducation to these young children and just grab them by the throat and squeeze my fingers together until the trachea snaps and watch their lifeless form hit the floor. Because that to me is in violation of the very ethos of what good teaching, good parenting is all about. You protect the kids, you educate the kids, you don't indoctrinate the kids. We're not Nazis, we're not communists so their answer to this situation apparently is genderism okay i don't know about you but i studied biology in college and i'm only aware of two genders so if you've got all these others i'd like to see where they are on the uh human periodic table
0: this is a weird pressure for all these children to grow up with like
1: but it's unnecessary, like- it's, unnecessary. it's unnecessary it's unnecessary pressure and and it, basically to me I would, I would, I would place this into the category of not just child neglect but child abuse. Yeah, I would put it into a child abuse category, and uh, I don't, I just do not understand how in living hell these people can get on camera, like you see some of these TikToks. And if you use TikTok, you're a moron. It's Chinese spyware. Okay, they're on TikTok, they're on this other stuff. And they're talking about these teachers, some uh usually they're 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 lesbians or, or or gay guys or whatever, and they're talking about, oh, today we talked about, oh, the multiple genders and how you can change your identity and all this. And we talked about oh, and they're talking and, and they're explicitly telling you on these videos what they're telling the kids, which to me at at age sixty is appalling. I'm looking at this going, what the what? You're you're proud to be telling me on this screen that you're indoctrinating kids on sex toys and on uh the alternative lifestyle of transgenderism and these kids are in elementary school why don't you teach them to read and do math for christ's sake okay you being a cross-dressing lgbtq xyz kind of person you're a barely functional human being as it is apparently so you you must really want to drag more people into your personal misery. These kids should not be your guinea pigs. I think I think I think um,
0: people can understand why or not understand why, why. me and you we got banned from from LinkedIn? We were basically expressing some concerns about things like this, you know. And, and Microsoft, we're coming for you. You are a really bad company.
1: Oh, uh, let me tell you right now. I, I think I think that after the after the November elections this year. When the, uh, when the garbage is swept out of the swamp, when they finally f- unclog that, that toilet and flush the liberalism out of the House and then they, they take back the Senate. I don't agree with the Republicans on, on many things, but I agree with them on a lot more than I do the liberal Democrats, because at least the conservatives may apply something that I find distasteful, but at least I can usually see some logic in the thought process. I can't see anything resembling logic coming out of, out of Biden's administration, the progressive left. I can't see any logic in any of it because I, I'm a logical person. I think in logical terms, I think in realistic terms. Um, but I think that once you, once the house and the Senate fall into Republican hands, I think you're going to see a sweep of the social media collective. I think you're going to see punishments. You're going to see sanctions. You're going to see all kinds of, uh, I would like to use the word progressive in a conservative format, cleaning up of the uh, social networks, because what they're doing to get uh, the Section 230 protection under under un, under the law in this country is there's supposed to be a non-editorial format. It's supposed, it's supposed to be an open forum for people to share ideas, post things, but... If you are going to edit content and kick people off of, of platforms that you disagree with, you just became an editorial component. You just became the same as a newspaper or a magazine. Therefore, you should not receive those special protections. Those protections go away when you violate the va- basic tenets of the agreement. And Mark Zuckerberg, I, I, he has a lot to answer for. And not just him, but that idiot moron who, has the, uh, who created, what is it, uh, Twitter? That moron. Uh, I, I think these. Uh, I think these inbred genetic failures are going to ha- have a payday, and it's not going to be. Th- it's going to be them paying out. Because they have done so much disservice to people. This guy Kyle Rittenhouse, who was acquitted on uh, the murder charge in Wisconsin uh, back during the 2020 riots, when he, he shot a couple of people and killed one in self defense. The social media networks went nuts, calling him a white supremacist, a racist, a murderer. I mean, they were basically laying him out as a Klansman with a gun, killing black people when the people he shot were white. And the guy he was shooting was already being looked at. as He was already a violent criminal who was coming after Rittenhouse, and he had a gun himself. So you got to look at all this. So. When you distort the news, which Trump called fake news, and I totally agree with it. It is fake. It's not even news. I I call it – I I, I would call it uh, hopeful propaganda. But when these outlets start bending the truth and they start putting out their own version of events but don't let you counter with fact, that's when you should shut them down. Well,
0: Colin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back. As always, you can see I'm – with all of the boost crash stuff and army stuff i'm learning about in this history it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you it's been uh, good to find a bit of time again to do a bit of podcasting as i um, take a break from some of the tech work i've been doing um but yeah just appreciate it and um yeah what are you doing what what, what, what were we expecting for the next uh, year or two from colin heaton
1: well hopefully get that tiger book out i finished my other book that uh Above the Pacific. Above the uh, Right came out last year. Above the Pacific will be out in February. Uh, and then I'm currently ghostwriting for a for a general who served in the in four presidential administrations, his memoirs. I'm helping him out. And I'm hoping to get the... Uh, I'm hoping to get this, uh, this, this production stuff off the ground with uh, the Star of Africa, the Hammer, and a couple of other projects. And Just waiting to see what happens, you know, but I'll make sure uh, i make you aware of what happens when it happens. But yeah, like I say, the YouTube forgotten history, we're putting about two videos a week up that may increase later. Uh, But we just put the one on Lyudmila Pavlichenko today just came up. And uh, so we're going to be doing a lot of those types of things. Good personal stories about people from World War Two and other subjects. So take a look at those and see what you like, and uh, a few, quite a few of those would be worthy of film as well. Okay, cool. Well, Colin, thanks for your time, and thanks for everyone that's
0: watched today on the Nuclear Show. We'll see you again shortly. Bye-bye, everyone.
1: Later.